Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast, the podcast about imaginative self-care for skeptics. I'm your host, Durmak, the wizard and peasant lord of the vast ten-acre realm of Habdur, also known as Garrison Benson. Greetings, Placebo Mages. Today, exploring the art form of theater and what it can teach us about magic and self-care. But first, thank you to our newest Patreon backers, Gracilis, Techi, and Chris. And thank you to our patrons at the producer level or above, Alconet, Emily, A Sociology of Tarot, Agnomenimus, Annie, Brianne, Carrie, Dev, Fen, Gune, John, Techi, Tony, and Valerie. Also, I want to apologize that the uh, audio quality in this episode is not great, especially as you get closer to the end of the episode. But the funny story that goes with this is that I, um, for a while, I thought it would be cool if I was able to like record and capture the kind of nature sounds while I record. Um, and I, I recorded this episode during a thunderstorm thinking that it would be cool if you could just hear that in the background during the episode, but the microphone didn't really pick it up all that well. Um, and so I t- edited out the thunder, um, but the, uh, the rain, because of the varying intensity of the rain over the course of the recording, it made the usual kind of noise removal processes um, not work as well as, as, as usual. Um, and so, uh, anyway, you can, as you go through the episode, just know that the whole episode, the recording process was infused with additional magical power thanks to being uh, recorded during a thunderstorm. All right, so today I want to do another of these magical arts episodes where I kind of dive into a particular um, art form or hobby and explore kind of the connection between that and placebo magic, both in terms of what that art form has in common with the practice of magic and ritual and self-care and all of that, and then, you know, also how you can use that art form in your own practice. So today I want to talk about the art form known as theater. So this encompasses not only acting, but also, you know, the other art forms that kind of go with that, you know, the set design, the writing, the music, the dancing, the props, the lighting, everything that's all kind of part of theater. And this is one of the art forms that I have gotten involved with, particularly in the last few years through participating in community theater productions. I think that my um, getting involved with theater is one of the things that kind of got me subconsciously thinking about placebo magic because of kind of the experience of playing a character. And the first show that I did as an actor was uh, Shrek the Musical, and I played Lord Farquaad. And I had this kind of like observation that embodying that character it's it, it almost felt at, at a point like it was another being within me that could just kind of pop out and be and so i just remember finding that kind of interesting that that playing the character you know in all these rehearsals it's almost like it sort of awoke a you know not another 
self, but a, a sort of like something that I, I kind of perceived as another, another being. And I think that that subconsciously kind of um, motivated me, but to be more curious about magic, even as, you know, like a, a skeptic. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's basically the first kind of point I want to explore, which is the idea of, you know, as an actor, um, just the kind of the interesting process that happens in your brain. I think that just like in general role playing is a good way to help you kind of get out of your own beliefs about yourself and experience parts of yourself that you didn't know that you were able to tap into. I know for myself um, as an actor, there have been times where I, I was really struggling to kind of tap, kind of um, pull off a certain thing in terms of the character and found out that it, eventually when I got it right, I found out that it, it, it didn't, wasn't so much that I didn't know how to do it. It's that I kind of had to sort of give myself permission to do it or kind of create a, a almost like a sacred space of permission in order to get into that. So like I, I know I've had times on stage where I had that problem with expressing anger or it was it was kind of difficult for me until I sort of was able to kind of get outside of my own head and and kind of, you know, really embrace the effect that this is not me. And then also likewise with um uh like uh portraying a more suave flirtatious sort of energy that that was another thing where it's not part of you know how i normally perceive myself and so it it wasn't that i didn't know how to do it it was that i had to kind of achieve this level of like separation from my self concept i i have the like knowledge of how to be this way i just it's just not part of my self concept and so it's like blocked I think that my experience in community theater has kind of, um, in, a, in a way, kind of loosened up my sense of self and that I kind of have this, a little bit of skepticism about these sort of self-concept beliefs. Like, I, I don't necessarily assume that I'm right when I think that I am not a certain way or that I am a certain way. I, I think, like, that those kinds of things can be self-fulfilling prophecies and if you kind of take all of that with a grain of salt, then it opens up a lot more, you know, possibilities for for the future and who you want to be. Just to know that, like, that you're not set in stone. You're not just like an immutable being. Now, to look at theater more from the standpoint of the whole production, you know, I think that this again was like something that got me thinking about ritual and about magic and whatnot. Because um, what I noticed both as uh, when I was in community theater productions and then uh, after I got involved with the community theater for a few years, I managed the, the theater building slash like um, the movie theater part of it, which is in the same space. I, I noticed that, you know, there's these similarities between the, the, the sort of ritual of just like going to a theater to see a show and the ritual of like going to a church and participating in a service and that they have these kind of uh for one thing this there's a, a a lot of similarity in the physical space and that you're kind of passing through a series of thresholds in order to enter the sort of sanctum of this ritual and then you are you are participating together with a bunch of other people in this kind of um 
weird state of consciousness and, and they're not the same necessarily, but in church, you're generally trying to either have this kind of contemplative state of consciousness or perhaps like a um, elevated ecstatic state of consciousness. And in the case of going to see a show, you are kind of submitting to this communal experience with the rest of the audience of suspending disbelief and kind of subjecting yourself to be emotionally moved by a fictional story. And so I just, I happen to notice, you know, there's similarities, like when you're entering a church, you know, there's like the, a series of thresholds that you pass through. You first, you enter the building and then you enter the sanctuary and like it kind of, you know, that kind of reminds me of like in the Bible, the, uh, in the old Testament, the, the Holy of Holies, it's like the, the temple is like a kind of concentric zones. The innermost zone is the most holy zone. Um, and not everybody's allowed to go into that, that most holy area. Likewise, when you're, you know, kind of going into a, a theater, you enter the building and then you get, you get your ticket and, and you pass by the second threshold when you, buy, when you, you know, go, go, uh, into the area where you have to have a ticket. Usually it's like a hallway with other, with all the auditoriums or whatever. And then you enter the actual theater and then there's this, uh, so that's, those are like the physical space thresholds. And then you have like the time thresholds, which are, you know, like the, the first one might be when the trailers begin. And then there's another time threshold when the, when the movie starts. And then at the end of the movie, there's kind of the unwinding thresholds of time, which is, which are the, the credits rolling. And then finally the credits ending. And at some point in there, the lights come up. And so it's, again, similar to a church service. It's like the, the space becomes kind of sanctified for that ritual process um, during that, that sort of window of time when, you know, the, the lighting changes and the, the expectations for the crowd change. And that, like, before the lights go down in the movie theater, it, it's kind of totally fine to have a conversation with the person next to you. And then moments later, it might be very rude because of the, you know, ritual that is happening, you know, this kind of civic ritual of, of going to see a movie or a show. Now, in the case of theater specifically, as opposed to movies, you know, in both cases, the audience is participating in a su suspension of disbelief. But in the case of live theater, a lot of times it's a much more active participation in that movies, generally speaking, try to depict everything like sort of physically on the screen. So if a character, you know, is doing something, they have to actually show that. Whereas in um, live theater, there's some combination of, you know, actually seeing stuff, but versus things that are kind of just suggested or implied. And, and it really depends on the particular production and the play and everything. Take, for instance, a play like uh, Our Town, traditionally that show has no props, no set, just a, a, a handful of chairs that are painted white that serve a few different purposes throughout the show. So the audience is invited to imagine the entire scenery of the town. And the, um, if I remember right, there's like a, a sort of a narrator figure who is telling you, oh, back over there is this thing. And did you just hear that church bell? And, you know, whatever, kind of painting the picture. And so the, in that play, the audience is expected to have this very active role of throughout the entire play sustaining in their imagination all of the scenery while there's really very little happening on stage. I mean, there's, there's really nothing on stage besides the actors in a few chairs. Whereas other shows, you know, ha might have a more uh, spectacle kind of production with elaborate costumes and props and sets and everything. 
And I, I think that kind of illustrates an interesting thing with uh, ritual and magic, which is that let's say you are performing just kind of a, a, a I don't know, a ritual out of like an off the shelf kind of witchy tome. You know, a lot of those sorts of rituals involve visualization. And it's like you're, you may be interacting with actual physical props like a, a wand or athame, but then at the same time, you are also asked to visualize the sort of the special effects that might go with it. Like you might be asked to visualize a, a sphere of light surrounding yourself or a ball of energy, or um, you know, might, might be asked to visualize like pulling the dark energy out of something. And so I think that theater can kind of teach us something about about that and when you go to see a, a a live theater production like there's not necessarily a strong correlation between how powerful the emotional experience is and how physically highly produced everything is versus being kind of this implied suggested things if i'm hopefully i'm being clear there but you know that some things are visualized by the audience. Other things are physically present in the form of props and costumes and sets. And there's a lot of gray area in between. You know, for instance, you may have a painted backdrop that looks looks very flat, but of course you're expected to sort of project that into a into an imagined reality that is not two dimensional. And so, yeah, I think that like the fact that that can be such a powerful experience, and I think in many cases live theater can be a more powerful experience than a, a movie because of the physical presence of the actors and that there's the dynamicity of, you know, the actors being able to kind of play off the audience and vice versa. And just the, just the fact that you're, you know, that if there's a physical three-dimensional person in front of you, their emotional reactions in character are informing, you know, how you might feel, even though this is might be happening in a kind of fictional reality. What that can teach you about ritual, I think it's, it's to teach you that, Basically, that the, the props are optional, the paraphernalia is optional, the setting is optional. Um, you can fill in as much as you need to with visualization. You can do the, the, you know, the heavily produced version where you have this inner sanctum in your house with a bunch of cool objects in it and you have all of your wizard costume and everything. Or you can do the minimalist version, the Our Town style version where you have basically nothing in terms of physical objects and props and costuming, and you just have your imagination to kind of fill in the special effects and the scenery of your magic. Basically, anything that you can do in terms of ritual, you can do as just a visualization or just a visualization plus gestures, you know. Um, you really don't need any of the paraphernalia in order to have a powerful experience. That's not to say that it's bad to have it. It's just to say that it's not necessarily, I don't think, correlated to how powerful of an emotional experience you're going to have. Now, another thing that I have learned from participating in theater about magic is, well, I guess not, not so much about magic specifically, but about, I don't know, being, being a human, I guess, and, and kind of making it through the world as a human being. Is I think that, that being an actor has taught me a lot about my own memory and how memory works. And I think that we tend to have this kind of erroneous intuition about memory. We tend to think of memory as something that we're supposed to be able to just like put a piece of information in there and get it back out when we need it later. But that's not really how it works. Memory is like a web and you have to kind of, if you want to access something from your memory, you have to sort of recall it using the same connections that you stored it with. And so like, this is kind of like the idea of 
if you lost your keys, you know, trying to think of where, where do you remember having them last or something? It's like you, you're trying to think of anything that's associated with that thing in order to, to recall the, the lost memories. And so with acting, you know, it, it's very difficult to memorize lines just as pure bits of information as like pure text. But the more you are able to create memories through rehearsal of those lines in context of where you are on the stage when you say them and who you're looking at and what you're doing in terms of gestures, you know, it all interconnects so that like in, it ends up being that having all of these different things to memorize in terms of the lines and the blocking and the choreography and all the, you know, all these other pieces that you have to memorize in the end, it becomes easier when you have all those pieces in place because you create this like stronger web of interconnections where you're not just being cued by the previous line, you're being cued by all of these circumstantial things that are around you that allow you to remember the next line more easily. And so it kind of creates this more automatic flow. Whereas if you have just memorized the lines, you know, you really have not so much a web as a chain, you know, and so if you get thrown off at all, then, then the chain is broken and you're stuck. But if you, if you connect everything to, to the, you know, the physical space and the, and everything, then it, it all, it becomes easier. And I think that when it comes to just kind of going through life, you know, there's not really a, I don't think a, a, a strong distinction between memory as in how we store bits of information versus um, memory as in kind of learned behaviors. As far as I understand, they're kind of both part of this associative memory and, and just that in some cases you're associating bits of information and in other cases you're associating actions. You know, if, you, if you're trying to kind of coerce yourself to behave more in a certain way, it's like you want to kind of fill your environment with cues for that behavior so that, um, like, you know, like on stage, it's like when you're learning a show... At first, you know, you cannot possibly do everything at once. Like typically when we're learning a song, first you learn just the song by itself and you're just sitting in a chair or whatever, just standing still learning the song. And then you learn the choreography by itself, the, like the dance moves, without trying to sing the song while you're dancing. And then once those start to become automatic, you put them together. And, um, and once they are together, they reinforce each other and the memory becomes stronger. Like for instance... For me, a lot of times I struggle with um, mixing up the order of different verses in a song if they don't have a clear narrative, like logic to which one goes where. But I find that when I add the choreography with it, then it makes it more clear because it gives me a, a, more, a more clear flow. Um, but anyway, the, the point I'm getting at is, you know, I've talked some, sometimes in the past about this idea of like that free will is almost like, the, like an action economy mechanic in a board game where you have, you know, a finite amount of will to spend in a given day or whatever. And, um, but you can kind of hack the system to make different things cost less. And this is something I've experienced through theater, which is that it's like you have only so many things you can mentally juggle, but as you move them from conscious endeavors to autopilot, it frees up your mental energy to think about other things. And so while in the early stages of rehearsing, you might just be trying to remember where to stand and then gradually you're adding in like okay i gotta remember all my lines i gotta remember all, all my choreography and the amount of different things you're able to juggle gets bigger and bigger as you go 
to the point where ideally, by the time you're actually performing the show, the resource that you have in terms of conscious willpower or, con- or mental energy and consciousness is not being spent on trying to remember anything. It's, it's instead being spent on like trying to give a good performance and thinking in terms of, you know, the char- in character moments, but also being kind of ready to adapt to things that go wrong. And so, yeah, again, it's like if you are able to take these kind of ideas from um, the science of habit formation, for instance, it's it's a similar idea where it's like you if you can offload things instead of requiring conscious will and turn them into autopilot things, then it frees up your conscious will to be spent in other ways. So let's now get into um, some ideas about, you know, how you can apply the theatrical arts to your magical practice. And I think that there's, there's really like a, a myriad ways because there's really a pretty substantial overlap between theater and ritual. I mean, the, the whole concept of like, you know, the theatrical arts is designed to kind of create an emotional reaction in the audience and to kind of evoke something in the audience's imagination. It's basically, you know, you're trying to get the audience to care about fictional characters that they know are fictional and they may not, you know, they may have to imagine a large pieces of it. And you're still trying to get, evoke a powerful experience, which is really very similar to what you're doing in ritual. And so I think any of the technical arts of theater, whether that's costuming, makeup, lighting, acting, music, set design, any of those things can very naturally transition into magic in that it's part of your kind of setting the stage for ritual. If you, you know, if you're someone with a theater background, you can use your intuition about lighting and your intuition about costuming and makeup and everything you can you can use all that just very naturally in magic in a very similar way likewise you know this, these kind of um, intuitions about the the sort of ritual of theater apply very naturally like i was saying earlier to the practice of of magical ritual and occult ritual and self-care ritual and whatnot and that you want to you know have this kind of sanctified space and sanctified time where the ritual can happen without the kind of distractions of everyday life or the or the um, intrusions of everyday life. So having a no phone zone for your magical rituals is effective in similar way to why 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 we ask people to turn their phones off at a at a theater production because it's distracting and it takes you out of the moment. Now, I think a a, a particular way that you can use the the theatrical arts in your magic that may not be um immediately obvious in this as much as the other ones is that you can use this process of role playing, you know, temporarily trying to embody a role. This could be you, that you are role playing a character who represents kind of a facet of yourself, almost like an like an archetypal piece of yourself, and sort of take on the 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 voice of that in order to try to give voice to some some part of yourself that you may not be able to, in your normal kind of self concept, listen to very easily separating it from your from your sense of self makes it easier to hear and give voice to and experience these other parts of yourself. And I, I think this is really very similar to what we're doing when we are interacting with imaginary beings like our imaginary friends and spirits and sages and all of that. Let's say you're, you know, you're praying to an imaginary friend, you're you're kind of your brain is like simulating with how they might respond in your kind of visualization of them. It's not that different in the case that you're role-playing that character. It's just that you are physically acting out what they would do rather than um, visualizing it. And I, I think that, that that physical acting may actually 
give you some insights that visualizing it might not because you um if you start to feel in your body the kind of emotional the physical emotional reactions or you know kind of if you experience the physiology of emotion in a in an embodied way that might spark some new insights i know when i'm acting on stage a lot of times i have these kind of character insights that come as a result of body language which you'd think would be the other way around like my body language is informed by character insights but it goes it goes both ways there's sometimes when i find myself um in, instinctively doing a certain um like a certain manner of uh holding my body that then later on i realize actually is a a natural result of that character and that i just kind of instinctively did that and then i can go back and sort of put incorporate that into my understanding of that character and i think it's the same with with role playing in the context of self care and ritual is that you may learn something about yourself by role playing a sort of lost and forgotten or neglected piece of yourself and finding out that there is some connection to how that manifests in your body and your in your body language and how you hold yourself and in terms of where the tension is in your body and your muscles and all of that and finally just just in the in the very general sense you can almost like um design a ritual in a similar way that you would design a play it's just that you are like i talked about in the uh, magic as a metaphor lightning round episode or a metaphor is magical lightning round episode you are using this play or ri this ritual that is basically a play as a transformative tool in order like you're kind of mapping you know the state of things as they are to the beginning of the play and the state of things as you want them to be at, to the end of the play and then as you act it out you are creating that transformation so you can really use all of the tools of theater just as a ritual by just play acting what you want to happen how you want things to change to combine these couple of ideas here you know if you are wanting to ask sort of a, a patron um, sage-like figure to help you then you could sort of role swap and you take on in your body the role of that figure that sort of um, mentor figure or sage-like figure and then you speak to yourself as and picture yourself in the third person and speak to yourself and that may make it easier to speak to yourself in a kind and, and compassionate and wise way than it is to do so just in your ordinary day-to-day self-talk. You can find the Placebo Magic Podcast and my poetry on the web at garrisonbenson.com. Leave a voicemail for the show by calling 989-318-4118. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. You can support the show by giving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing an episode with a friend, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash placebo magic. Patreon supporters also gain access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus show. Remember, magic is a metaphor, and metaphor is magical. <laughs>